Our message this morning is called Divine Dimensions. You have been discussing for some time elevating your priesthood. Here lately there's been a warfare theme in your messages. Well, we're going to elevate all the way up into divine realms. Today, my hope is that we can begin what will be a series. The series would be Divine Dimensions, but today we're going to focus on the very first dimension, which we're calling Drenched. Somebody say Drenched. Drenched. Our time at King's Harvest Church was very fruitful. The congregation there has expressed their heartfelt love and concern and thankfulness for each of you. The churches supporting the One Association allow for every other church to be ministered to. So you help make that possible, and and they appreciate that. King's Harvest is continuing to build the physical building. They're continuing to add families, and they're continuing to be resisted. These are all signs that they're on the right track. Amen? Amen. Submission ministries, where we just spent some nine services, ten services... They, um, they're an amazing group of leaders. Their core group is expanding ministry activity in every direction. They're growing in size. Maybe most excitingly, they're raising a generation of children that are very serious about advancing the kingdom. Look, submission ministries is properly focused on the long game. They're going to succeed in their heavenly mandate because they are front loading 10 years from now. And uh, when we see all of those guys come into their own, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Are you ready to get into a message that is in a series called Divine Dimensions, but this message is dimension number one, drenched. Let's go to Genesis 14. Let me know you're there when you were there. We're going to start with a kind of 30,000 foot view. In Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedor Lamor and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is an incredible battle with overwhelming odds, and we're not going to go into that. But we have... Four kings facing off against five, and many are on the wrong side of things. You define their names, and it's incredible. But that's really not the point this morning. In this battle, Abram is rescuing Lot. And that is an interesting facet, but it is also not our point this morning. The king of Sodom actually fought alongside Abraham, which is awkward. But Abraham was not social with Sodom. He would accept nothing from his hands. He wanted there to be no chance that the king of Sodom thought he had anything to do with the blessings that were on Abraham's life. And that is not our message this morning. 
It is the introduction of this Malek Zedek, this Melchizedek, this King of Righteousness, this Heavenly Priest. We, we only make it 14 chapters in to the Torah of God, and we have a figure appear that theologians today have a hard time explaining. He's a king of righteousness, he's a king of peace, but he is called a priest of the Most High God. And the first thing that he does is share a communion meal with the man that would become the father of the faithful. He brought out bread and wine. Now if you come here today from a biblically challenged church and you think it's grape juice and wine, then you'll misunderstand all the rest of the Bible too. And we'll forgive you for it, but you'll have to grow beyond it. The neat thing about this interaction is we have a terrific battle. We have a communion meal. And then a blessing by a priest that goes in two directions. The priest bless Abram because he was faithful and he was obedient. But the priest also blesses God. When you consider that, this priest is representing two parties. This priest is bridging the gap between faithfulness on earth and righteousness in the heavens. This priest has shown up at a time when relatives are being rescued but war is being fought. This priest is showing up at a time when the man of God on earth needs to be blessed of heaven because he's doing heaven's work and he's not sure that he's doing heaven's work. Lot should have never been in this situation, but it was still heaven's desire to rescue him. Some of the men fighting should not have been on the same team, but it was still heaven's desire that this side prevail. Abram needed the blessing. But then the priestly figure does something incredible. He blesses God. I mean, think on those words for a minute. And blessed be God, Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. The battle victory is credited not to Abram, And certainly not to Sodom. The battle victory is credited to God who was directing the battle, although it was unseen. Can I tell you that there is a merger between the idea of elevating your priesthood and warfare? There are divine dimensions that we're going to pick up here. Fourteen chapters into the Bible, a heavenly priest shows up and interferes with things on earth. The victory that he's commemorating in the meal that they shared foreshadows all that would come afterwards in this book. I want to show you that in an easy fashion. Let's go to Exodus 19. When you get to Exodus 19, say there. Nineteen in verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You need to understand that it was the intent of the Father from the very beginning that every single person that he redeemed became a priest. The priest was not a special select class of Israelites. The entire nation was called to be a kingdom made up solely of priests. The whole nation had been atoned for by the blood. 
The whole nation walked through the Red Sea in a baptism. And the whole nation followed the leading of the Spirit represented by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. The whole nation was called to be a kingdom of priests. But I keep calling it a nation. And it is a nation. Before it's a nation, it is Abraham's family. This faithful man that went to battle when God said to go to battle, that did what God said to do. Do you know in Genesis 14, he meets a heavenly priest, but in Genesis 15, he is credited with righteousness because his life has begun to show that he believes what heaven says and he carries it out on earth. The Bible is a funneling story. A story that is narrowing to a point where God is looking for on earth men that represent heaven's prerogatives. He is looking for a priesthood on earth that matches the priesthood in the heavens. So before there is ever a priest on earth, a heavenly priest is introduced. And he shows up speaking to the Father of the faithful. Now from that father of the faithful, from Abraham's line, God destined to raise up a nation, a whole nation that would be priests to the rest of the world. It's not because he didn't care about the rest of the world. It's because he did care about the rest of the world. He was looking for a specific group of people that would be blood bought, that would be water baptized, that would be spirit empowered and arrive at a priesthood that looked like heaven so that the whole earth could benefit from their existence and his dwelling with them. That was what God said when he brought Israel out of Egypt. This is one of the first times that the word priest appears in the Bible. Now, many of you are familiar with paleo. I just want to show you this quickly so you can get a concept. Priest was not an occupation. It was not a job like going to work for the Texas Department of Transportation. A priest, first and foremost, when you considered the entire image, was somebody that had an open hand. And in the middle of that open hand had a revelation. And their first and foremost identity is they are a son of God. God was looking for people that would carry a revelation of God's design, a revelation of God's uh, pattern, a revelation of God's will, and it would be in their hand, and no matter where they went, the two things that would be their distinguisher, that man is a son of God, and that man has a revelation in his hand that I need something from. This was the defining factor of a Cohen or a priest. We won't go into all of the paleo today. We have too much to get to. We are seriously going to get into divine dimensions. And it's going to start with being drenched. Now, the battle of Exodus. God partnered with a faithful man, Moses. And they won. The blood covered the houses of the Israelites. There was a faithful man, there was a battle, and there was something very much like a communion or a Passover meal. The intent of that entire battle was to purchase a priesthood. Just like the intent of Melchizedek showing up with Abraham was to begin a priesthood on earth. We had to be introduced 
with a heavenly pattern, a heavenly priest, so that men on earth would know what God was like, what God wanted, what God would want to be done. This was a blessing to men, and it was a blessing to God. The entire Exodus takes Abraham's family, and what happened for just Abraham is now happening for the entire family. Anybody ever have something go wrong in your family? You ever been the one it went wrong with? God's intent was always to have a nation, the whole nation, everyone, a priest. But in Exodus 32, we're going to pick up in verse 26. You know what has happened. The nation has called two golden calves, Yahweh or Yehovah. The nation has said that they're worshiping God, but they're misrepresenting on earth what God is like in the heavens. The nation has the right words, but the wrong actions. It's a good thing that never occurs anymore. The nation is still printing the right gospel tracts. The nation is still wearing the right gospel t-shirts. They're even listening to the secularly produced Christian radio station, just like the church world today. But in fact, their actual worship was of idols. That can be a problem. In Exodus 32, God is addressing the situation. Actually, he's doing it through Moses. 32, 26. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. I want you to understand throughout church history, within the body of Christ, within those who are believers, there has still been someone that raised up and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Because from time to time, the family of God has drifted from its purpose, no longer representing heaven as it should. And it does it to the applause of congregations. Whoever... It's for the Lord. Come to me. Can you hear their murmurs in the background? Man, that sounds like a cult. Those people think they are the only way. The way that we're worshiping is every bit as good as the way they're worshiping. Who are they to say that about us? So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, it is a hallelujah moment, but the Levites? Where were everybody else? The Levite is one tribe out of 12. Where is everybody else? The whole nation is called to be priests. The whole nation are sons that have a revelation in their hand. The whole nation represents God before any other thing. And they were purchased for that reason. They were delivered for that reason. They were empowered for that reason. They're 50 days outside of that empowerment and they've already abandoned that position. But the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. To you, that's a story. So it's just a story. What happens when the gospel causes separation between those that you would prefer to be united with? Those that you love and God loves and those that he would like to see saved and you would like to see saved. The problem is they think they are and they're worshiping idols. 
It's a question that's worth considering. Strap a sword to your side. Go throughout the camp. Brothers, friends, neighbors. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 people died. You know, that is a difficult thing. 3,000 people died. Of course, it could have been 3 million. There were none there that, that were doing well. The scripture repeatedly before this says all the people, all the people, all the... See, and that is the situation. Well, since we're all guilty, it's kind of like nobody's guilty. That's wrong. There is a heavenly priesthood at stake. And those that represent heaven's interests, those that stand fast with heaven, those that seal it with a communion meal and are constantly engaged in a battle, they're selected out of larger groups to be. The Lord's people. I say, wait a minute, they were all the Lord's people. Yes, but the majority were in danger of not being the Lord's people. God wanted an entire nation of priests, and what he got was one tribe that took it that seriously. But God's will will never be thwarted. He will get his nation. This is the day that the Levitical priesthood is born. Look at verse 29. Then Moses said, you have been set apart for the Lord today. You were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Who would ever call that a blessing? The same kind of God that would show up when four kings fight five, and a man rescued his nephew with 318 trained men, and the whole situation's a disaster, but some stood with the Lord? That's who would call that a blessing. Standing with the Lord in a messy situation. Standing with the Lord and representing Him. Realizing that there are higher dimensions to our walk than earth dwellers realize. The Levites were distinctly different than the other Israelites. The day before this action, they were exactly the same. The day after this action, they are distinctly different. And the reason that they're different is they value what God has said more than they value any other thing, and they've proven it. Everybody else pledged it, but these priests proved it. Can you say it's easier to pledge a thing than to prove a thing? Which takes us to Malachi 2. It turns out that every time God picks a group of people, Satan attacks that group of people, that group of people then... Begins to go astray and God always picks a remnant out of them. In Malachi 2, beginning in verse 4. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition. So that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him. A covenant of life and peace. He makes a covenant with Levi that he calls life and peace on the day that the Levites killed the other Israelites that were disobedient. It turns out that peace has always been something you have to fight for. And everybody else calls it anything else other than peace. A covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Somebody say, that's true. true. 
But shouldn't it have been true of every Israelite? Wasn't that what every Israelite was called to? When did this become the domain of a select group of Israelites? Well, that was never God's goal. God's goal was always the whole nation. God just only had one-twelfth participation. And he said, I will take that one-twelfth and I will do what needs to be done. Of course, look at verse 7. For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you, the you here is Levites, but you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. You Levites are not living up to Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in the matters of the law. The very reason that the Levites were chosen out of the group of Israelites that had already been chosen is they showed no partiality. But when they lost that distinction, then they were no longer useful. I want you to understand that God will save a people. God will redeem a people. God will empower a people. He will give them a calling. But if they do, do not do that calling, he will move to a group of people that will. That has nothing to do with the rejection of Israel. He didn't reject Israel. Israel rejected their function at that time. God's able to wake them up again. He didn't reject the Levites. The Levites were rejecting their function at that time. He's able to wake them up again. Can I tell you? then I'm hoping to wake you up to the divine dimensions of your calling today. This time period makes me praise God for Genesis 14. I know you've read it before and you've said there are a lot of weird kings who went to war against... I mean, there's a dude named She-Member there. It's like we're reading about San Francisco. And because of the bizarre nature of everything, it's kind of like, ah, and, and great. Some guy named Melchizedek showed up. You don't understand what the Lord is doing. The Lord is introducing the actual heavenly pattern, the prototype, before anything is built on earth. Because when it is built on earth, it is often corrupted on earth. He wanted us to see what it looked like. So that when we were carrying it out on earth, we could always lift up our eyes and see something heavenly. Let's go to Psalm 110. Then we will have gone through the law, the prophets, and the writings. And we can dig a little deeper. Psalm 110, in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sounds a little bit like we have a battle going on. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of... Of your enemies, your troops will be willing on the day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Wow, this is like the second reference to this strange thing that occurred. And it's hard to know at first why it's even there. 
When everything on earth goes astray, we lift our eyes to a pattern that's revealed from heaven. That pattern precedes anything that came on earth, and everything on earth must conform to the heavenly pattern. Now, this is amazing. Abram, father of the faithful, blessed by Melchizedek. God, blessed by Melchizedek. Then some time goes by and Abraham's children are told, every one of you Israelites, every single one, a kingdom of priests. They go astray. He said, okay, okay. Those of you who stood with me, a priest. Then they go astray. But here we have somebody who is neither a Levite nor presently a priest. This is spoken to David's descendants, Judites. And one in particular, you will be a priest. You Actually, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, God time and time again is saying, I will establish on earth a heavenly priesthood. I'm going to do it through this nation. Well, if not everybody in the nation is doing well, I'll do it through the few who are. Uh, those guys are not doing well, then I'll pick a family. And from that family, I will change the earth. He's not limited by scope or size. He's simply looking for a faithful man that will enter into the battle, that will share an actual communion meal with him. That will actually be a blessing to God in his behavior. This heavenly partnering is the only way that battles are won on earth through faithful men. The descendant of David that would be priest in the order of the heavenly priesthood was coming, but it was said to David. I want you to consider that. We go, oh, well, this is Jesus. Some will even go Christophany route, which I'm not about to get into. They'll say, oh, Melchizedek is Jesus. They're missing the whole point. Within mankind, God would raise up an entire priesthood that looked like the heavenly priesthood. That's the whole of the point. Not a special unique figure. Not an only figure. He wanted an entire nation that resembled that figure. And he will get that nation. I'm going to come back to the idea of that priesthood. But I want to tell you that it always involves something like communion. So Abram meets Melchizedek and there is bread and there is wine. Joseph, before he becomes savior of the world, he deals with a baker who gets killed and a wine bearer who gets restored. Every time you look at these types, it will always involve something broken and something that redeems. You will always see blood and bread. You will always see a battle with heaven and earth meeting. That is what the heavenly and earthly priesthood merger is all about. For now... I want to reflect on a few things lightly. I tell you that in Romans 15, 15, we have a man from the tribe of Benjamin who says something that is curious. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul saw himself as a priest. And he wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a Judite. He didn't descend from David's family. He was from Benjamin. 
On what basis? He had seen a heavenly pattern and he was enacting it on earth. He was suffering for it, but he was doing it in a communion meal with the Lord at all times. Man, if the gospel's never caused you to feel like you're bleeding, if it's never caused you to be broken, if it's never separated you from somebody that you hoped you'd never be separated from, well, there's more divine dimensions that you get to rise to. 1 Peter 2, 5. There are some groundwork that I'm laying in the first 30 minutes of this message so that we can really get at something that becomes practical for you. The pastors are going to expand these concepts over the next few weeks, and I promise that they are going to bless you. 1 Peter 2, 5. I happen to be reading from the New American Standard, but NIV is an excellent choice as well. 1 Peter 2, 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here you see that believers are being referred to as a spiritual household, that we are being referred to like a temple with a priesthood. If you skip down to verse 9, you see the promise of Exodus 19 applied to any believer, which is interesting. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Somebody say, that's beautiful. beautiful. Of course, the first people it was said to did not in their generation rise to what it said. I'm speaking about Exodus 19, from which it's quoting. In Exodus 19, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. You you are my own possession. whole earth is mine, but you are special to me. The problem is, is the people abandoned the Lord when it counted. Of course, they never said they abandoned the Lord. They actually said quite the opposite, that they were worshiping Him. And the Levites separated themselves by standing with the Lord's original standard. Tell me we don't need people who stand with an original standard. I've heard enough pastors evolving on their positions. They should say what it is, devolving. Okay? They're no longer standing. That's a problem. God has always been looking for the group of people that said the price to enter the priesthood was so high, I will not pervert it. Period. There are a couple passages in Revelation that I think will make this point so strongly that we'll be able to move on from it. Is that all right with you? I mean, I'm looking at you, and some of you look like you're already having a rough day. (laughs) Okay, you all right? Revelation 1.5 And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, somebody say loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood. Loves you, yes, but that love applies blood so that you can be Released. 
That is a pretty key point, don't you think? The proof that you have properly dealt with the blood of Jesus is the release from the sin that it covered. (laughs) And the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to to his God and Father. He has made us to be a kingdom of priests. This kind of begs a question. What happens if you're covered in the blood, but you're never actually released from your sins, and you never become a priest? The book of Revelation says that He loved us, He freed us, and He has made us to be something. Man, when you purchase something, do you expect to receive what you purchased? Maybe I'm just reading it wrong. What's Revelation 5, 9? Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that's where we stop the quote, but you shouldn't. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Can you really be purchased with the slain blood of the Lord and not become a priest. Well, unfortunately, you're all wrong. You can do it. It was just never God's design. He purchased an entire nation, but they didn't all become priests. You see that in the very first generation. Then he purchased a specific priesthood. And they didn't all live out their priesthood either. There is a lie that says, because you started at a starting line, it's the same as finishing. This is not biblical. It's not right. The blood was to take you somewhere. It was to do something in you. I got a shocker for you that if they clip on YouTube just right, I'll sound like a heretic, but it won't be true. The blood was not to save you alone. Period. It was not. You were saved by the blood to be released from your sins so that you could become a priesthood. See, he didn't save Israel from the destroyer of the firstborn and say, I just wanted to save you. Now be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. He marched them to a mountain, revealed a pattern and said, you will be for me priest. You cannot be blood covered and just stay blood covered. We're going to get to that. You have to be transformed. You have to grow into the priesthood. Can I prove it with one more scripture from Revelation then share my real heart with you? Would you rather that I hold it back? Revelation 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. At the beginning of a millennial reign, there is a resurrection of the dead. And there's two ways to say this. Those who resurrect will be priests. And the other way to say it is nobody who re- nobody resurrects that is not a priest. Are you catching the pressure here? I mean, Judah shared in Jesus' ministry. It was said to Judas, you will sit on one of the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But he didn't exactly live up to that, did he? Every generation has had men and women 
that pledged well, that meant it when they pledged it, but were not transformed into what God called them to be. Every generation has. Read First and Second Timothy, you'll find six names in it that shipwrecked along the process. How do you shipwreck if the harbor is the starting and the finish line? Can I share with you what my actual heart is for you today? Do you kind of get that the overall trajectory of divine dimensions is that every single believer, every single one, is to become a priest? That God never wanted just a select class of priests. He always wanted everybody to become his priest. I want to tell you that Israel will, the Levites will, and many of you will. And it will form a new nation, the Israel of God. It will be inclusive and primarily based on the natural descendants of Israel. And then all of us wild olive shoots are grafted into it. But he will get his nation. But I think something's happened to us. And because I think it's happened to us, I want to see if I can shake us out of it. Elevate your priesthood. Elevate your priesthood. Go to war. Go to war. I love all of these things. In fact, most of them came from something birthed out of pastoral prayer. You can hear a thing enough to where it becomes commonplace. My in-laws had a clock in their house for years. And when I first met them sitting, sitting in their little foyer, because they're old school, nobody was ever allowed to go past the foyer. It's probably wise they had a wolf in their house and didn't know it. Sitting in their foyer, I'm hearing tick, 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 tick. And I'm like, how does this not drive these people insane? They don't even hear it anymore. So many things to us in Christianity have become that way. Let's read 17, uh, Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of a creature... Is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Not sure that we properly understand the power and the sanctity of blood in our Western and our modern society. It's lessened by the fact that we don't kill our own animals. It's lessened by the fact that your meat arrives neatly packaged in cellophane. It's lessened because we no longer die in our own homes, but instead we're handled by strangers with closed caskets graveside. It's lessened by the fact that we foolishly let our children and some of you who act like children played first-person shooter games with an unlimited ability to respond. Respawn. See... These things start to erode something. In fact, when you see something like three John Wick movies in a row, where the body count gets higher and higher every time, it's not a spaghetti western where the bad guy gets shot in the end and there's a small obvious ketchup stain. We literally are spilling blood like water. Somehow or another, this erodes something in us about the precious nature of the purchase price of your priesthood. The first time that blood is mentioned in the Bible, it's plural. And the writers 
of the Newer Testament some 2,000 years after the fact, actually 4,000 years after the fact, say that that blood is still speaking a message. Blood was so powerful that it was supposed to leave an indelible mark on on the conscience of a person. Whether Jew or Gentile, all men were told about reverence for blood. And somehow or another, the very thing that is the purchase price of the priesthood, the beginning, the first dimension to divine dimensions, has become rather common. Blood in the right circumstances, though, it makes a powerful impact on you, doesn't it? I haven't exactly lived the sheltered life. I can't help but look at the Rosales clan back there, and I'm so glad that we've all met saved. Many times in my life, I picked a situation with one brother and then realized he had four like you guys. Whether it was playing football, boxing, wrestling, or the many times I broke bones or had hundreds of stitches, or it was jumping out of airplanes, riding motorcycles, or repelling down mountain faces. I saw all kinds of things. Not exactly a sheltered life. And yet there are events that can leave a mark on you that nothing else can. We've done ministry in the jungles of Central America, the Andes Mountains of South America, the plains of Africa, the slums of India, the mosque of Indonesia. In just six days, we'll be making one of hundreds of international trips, and this time we'll be in Albania. I know what it is to be sick, lonely, interrogated, held at gunpoint. But none of those are the singular most soul-impacting, traumatizing memory that I have. Jennifer and I were doing marriage counseling. We were actually at Willie's. Our emphasis of marriage counseling was on parenting. Nothing will humble you more than being a parent. We were leaning across the table telling a couple what they needed to do with their children. My phone rang. I turned it over. It rang again. I swiped away. It rang again. I was like, somebody, you know, this is, this is important. I'm very sorry. I pick up the phone, and what I hear is terrifying. Come quick. Judah has been stabbed. No explanation. The phone doesn't drop the call. The phone drops to the floor. All I can hear is what sounds like wrestling. I was driving the white Ford that Matthew has now. And uh, back then it was a standard. I flew down the road. I got to the home that we live in now. And I remember distinctly that because I turned it off while it was still rolling and left it in first gear but got out of the vehicle before it had stopped, it had an abrupt jarring so that when I opened the door, the door smacked me in the face. What kind of urgency do you have when your firstborn has been stabbed? Nothing could prepare me for the scene that I saw when I threw open the door. 
Right there where we have foundations. Right where the tile becomes a wood transition. Blood was pooled on our living room floor. An arterial laceration was causing blood to shoot out of my firstborn body with horrific force and in terrifying quantity. As I tried to stop the bleeding, I was groping desperately to lift my then 200-pound son from the floor, and I was slipping in the profuse pool of blood that I was standing in. It was then that I looked down, and my hands were literally drenched in my son's lifeblood. If you're a parent in here, put your hands up. Think about that for a minute. There was no part of my skin that I could see. I was having trouble standing. And I was certainly having trouble holding him. You know, I cut my hand in a table saw one time. And for years afterwards, every time somebody turned on a table saw, I could still work with it. But I had a kind of nauseous feeling. I don't like to tell this story. Because I still get that, that feeling. I'd seen my own bones come through the skin. I'd experienced my whole front grill knocked out of my mouth. More than once, actually. I knew what it was to have the cold steel of an AK-47 placed against my forehead. But nothing in all of my experience had prepared me for the gut-wrenching myriad of emotions that filled my soul when I was drenched in my own son's blood. If you're sitting in here and you have a child, I want you to identify with that for a minute. If you're sitting in here and you have a younger sibling, I want you to identify with that for a minute. Is it heart-rending? Is it haunting? This was my son, and I was covered in his blood. Now, several surgeries... Quite a few months, and Judah recovered. But for a few agonizing hours, I spent them drenched in his blood. That caused me to regain something of a profound reverence for the power and the sanctity of the purchase price for me. Isaiah 53 is something that you've heard so often. I want you to listen to it again with new ears. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Why was the blood spilled? For your iniquity. I stared at my own hands, covered in my son's blood, and it left a mark on me. It's common that we sing songs about the blood. It's common to read about the blood. But if it was your son's blood, gratuitously, grotesquely saturating your hands, and it was because of your sin, would that change things? Would you take more seriously 
what that sacrifice was supposed to produce. Uh, how about this? Would you tritely recite the song, the doctrine, the often repeated, well, I know I sinned, but praise God for the blood. Can you imagine? That was your son. And somebody standing outside that benefited from the event said, well, praise God for the blood. If it was your son's blood, would you rather die than see your son's blood spilled because of something you did? See, Judah was stabbed, but I'm the one that bought the knife. While teaching a parenting class. I didn't know if he was going to live or not. Can you empathize with that at all? I remember being in an elders meeting and another son fell out of a tree goofing off with one of the other sons. And we had a break in a bone that caused even the elders to... Have we lost something of a reverence for the purchase price? I want to remind you before I go any further. He didn't purchase you to save you. Praise God for the blood. I'm saved by it. That might be the most condemning thing you've ever said in your life if you don't become what he purchased you to be. But this is a church that's elevating their priesthood. You're a church that is becoming what you're supposed to be. If it was your son's blood, would you treat the blood with contempt by repeating the very event that caused the blood to be shed? I'm struggling, brother, but I'm doing it from a place of victory. What the hell does that mean? It means that you're lying. You're doing exactly the same thing every week and just renaming it victory. Tell me we haven't lost an appreciation for blood. Could you get up from my living room floor, that profuse pile of blood, and just walk on like nothing had ever happened? Because I, as a father, couldn't. If it was your son, how would it have impacted you? But that really does bring us to the point, doesn't it? It wasn't your son. Even when I'm telling this story, it's not your son. It was God's son. Do you think that makes you more or less culpable, more or less responsible? When this becomes real to you, you value sacrifice, sonship, and the power of blood to transform you into a priest in a way that other people don't understand. Why do you take this so serious? You guys have to be so serious all the time. Yes. And if it was your son's blood, you would be this serious all of the time. Well, I know it looks like there's an easier way, a more popular path. If it was your son's blood, would you want the least costly route? When you are a drenched in the blood, purchased priest, you start to go to divine dimensions because the entrance price is looking at your own hands and going, I am drenched in his blood. When I hear Christians, especially new ones, 
offended with other people, it makes me really question whether or not you can be actually saved. How do you look at your own hands drenched in the blood of Messiah and look at other people and be offended with them when you murdered the Christ? Maybe that's it. Maybe we don't think that. Let's read Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus saw your sin. Jesus saw your separation. Jesus knew the price to bring you into atonement. It is His blood that makes atonement for one's life. You know what that means, though? That means His blood is on your hands. See, we've been selling help in this life and heaven in the next so long. We forget that the entrance price into God's service is you are covered in His blood. Tell me that doesn't change the way that you think about things. Have you ever wondered why today's preachers are celebrated in popular society? Why these prosperity pimps can live in lavish luxury and fly around in their multi-million dollar obscenities? It's because we've lost sensitivity to the power and the sanctity of blood. See, the apostles, they weren't celebrated for their wealth and popularity. They were hunted, tortured, martyred, and drawn into court with false accusations. Why? Because they were preaching exactly what I'm preaching to you right now. I'm going to prove it to you just by quoting it for you. Acts 5.28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Oh, I am determined to make you guilty of this man's blood. Because it never stays there. Sin in general, but more specifically your sin, is why Jesus offered his lifeblood in atonement. And that's why every one of your hands are stained in it. You are slipping in it and cannot stand to your feet in it. When you really experience this, when it really becomes part of you, it changes the dimensions that you walk in. You start thinking about the divine all day long. You want to walk in a heavenly realm. The kingdom stops being part time and it envelops your entire existence. You become a lifetime student of the kingdom. You're transformed into a son with a revelation in his hands that you cannot help but share with everybody that you meet. What's the first thing they notice about you? You see and understand something that they don't. And it's in your hand for all who will have it. Life for you is not the same as life for everybody else. This is how God selects his priesthood. Those that recognize their saturation In the son's blood. I'm telling you that if this was your son, you couldn't continue in sin. All you would want to do is repay the Lord for his goodness. We're told constantly you can't do that. Of course, the Bible says exactly the opposite of what these pansy preachers say from their uh, powder puff pulpits. In fact, Psalm 116 verse 12 
How can I repay the Lord? Isn't that a pretty straightforward question? For all of His goodness to me, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. See, what He's looking for is Jesus was faithful to fulfill His vows. Jesus A Judite became a priest in the order of Melchizedek and he showed the whole world how to do it. Have you been faithful in fulfilling your vows? What does it mean to lift up the cup of salvation? It's been going on since Melchizedek offered bread and wine to Abraham. You're lifting up the pledge of your death in every circumstance because a death was given that you might live. How do you get offended? How do you, how do you have any serious problem if you're looking at the blood of the one who allows you to live on your hands right now? See, it just shows us. It just shows us. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of the saints. Communion is in its essence joining your blood With the blood of Christ. It is the pledge that you do exactly what Jesus did. Did Jesus' family turn on him? Though not all of them and some came back. Did Jesus experience hardship all around him though he did nothing wrong? Was Jesus publicly executed like a criminal and falsely lied about in court and all? Yeah. Hey. If you're going to be covered in his blood, then you will be treated like he was treated. Covered. I should say drenched in his blood. Divine dimensions. You want to enter into God's actual plan? It starts with being drenched in his blood. That blood is for more than your salvation. I don't know that I've made that point clear enough. It's been said wrong so long that I might need to say it 2,500 more times to begin to make an impact. Well, the blood saves us. The goal of God is not to save you from your sin. That is below kindergarten level Christianity. He saves you from your sins so that he can empower you so that you can represent him on earth as his priesthood. Well, all I know is I'm saved. That's the first clue that you might not be. Or if you are, you won't stay that way. Maybe the best text that I could think of to show you that atonement was a beginning And not an ending is in Leviticus 14. Would you go there with me? We're at 59 minutes and I will be responsible with your time. And will not waste it. Because you are a priesthood. I want to introduce you to the divine dimension of being drenched. Because it will lead you into every other dimension. Leviticus 14 Now, some of you are going to recognize that I've taught on this passage many times. I'm going to tell you today you're going to hear something new if you're willing to listen with circumcised ears. 
In Leviticus 14, beginning in verse 14, the priest shall then take some of the blood of the guilt offering. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And listen, I'm not denigrating the song. I'm denigrating, denigrating how trite it becomes when it's not your son. It's not familial. It's not staining your hands. It's adorning our pretty songs. It is a guilt offering. Who needs a guilt offering but the guilty? The priest shall then take some of the blood of the guilt offering. And the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be. Why are we putting it on his ear? To cleanse him. Not just putting it on it to be forgiven. To cleanse. On the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed. And on the thumb of his right hand. And on the big toe of his right foot. The priest shall also. Somebody say also. Also. Take some of the log of oil. And pour it into his left palm. The priest shall then dip his right hand finger. Into the oil that is in his left palm. And with his finger sprinkle some of the oil seven times before the Lord. Of the remaining oil which is in his palm, the priest shall put some on the right earlobe on the one to be cleansed. And on the thumb of the right hand. And on the big toe of the right foot. But Nasby right here says it so clearly. On the blood of the guilt offering. Before we finish this passage, I, this is where I really hope you will tune in. If you didn't listen to anything else I said, I hope this is where we will get each other. There is a process. The process causes you to be drenched on your right ear with blood. This says my hearing has been guilty. I've been listening to lies my whole life. To be drenched on your right thumb. I've been doing things with my hands my whole life. That were wicked. To be drenched on your right great toe. Everywhere I went, it's because it's where I wanted to go. I haven't been represent heaven. I haven't been listening to heaven. I haven't been doing heaven's work. I do what I want to do. And until you come to that place and say, I am guilty. Not partially guilty. Not guilty just like they're guilty. Guilty kind of like, no, no. I deserve death. then you don't, you can't have the blood of the Son. But these people are coming forward because they know they're unclean. They know they are guilty. And the precious blood, the blood that was pooled, the arterial laceration that was shooting out, The blood of a precious son marks the place that was sin. We got the hearing, the working, and the the traveling to get all three areas of a man. 
But that is not where the process stopped. Having been atoned for, in your right ear, atoned for in your right hand, atoned for in your right foot, on top of that blood, over the top of the blood, over the top of the blood, came the anointing oil of God. You know why the blood is put there? So that something righteous is covering what was wicked. But that allows something, saint. For the spirit of the living God. Now, let's get this right. Ruach, spirit. Hakodesh, of holiness. For a spirit of holiness to come over and on top of the very place that was guilty. Why? So that you would be released from it and would not repeat it. He took your guilt and he covers it with blood. And we say, oh, well, praise God for the blood. That was a beginning. It was an atonement so that you could be empowered beyond what caused the need for the bloodshed. Praise God for the blood because it allows me to move forward in my relationship with the Lord. No longer guilty, now being empowered beyond what caused my guilt. And it didn't stop there. While the rest of the oil that is in the priest's palm, he shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. He anointed three specific places. The places that were covered in blood of a guilt atonement offering. He gave the spirit of the Ruach HaKodesh. The spirit of holiness beyond that sin. In all three places. And then everything that was left over. He put on the mind of the one to be cleansed. You are going to think different. You are going to walk different. You are going to act. You are going to be in a whole new dimension. I got to ask you something, saints. If Israel came out of Egypt covered in the blood of the Lamb, if they walked through watery grave death in the Red Sea, if they saw the visible images of the representation of God, and they followed it, but did not become the priest. How secure are you where you stand? If the Levites who were selected from the Israelites and did all of those things remained priests, but ultimately fell short of the high order that God called them to, how safe are you? Oh, well, praise God for the blood. This is spoken by pansies that have never had a real experience. Because i got to tell you, I wouldn't say that. I do praise God for the blood, but I wouldn't say it like that. I remember watching Passion of the Christ, and I had a difficulty sitting in my seat because I felt like somebody was beating Matthew to death. He's my friend. We are close. 
There is a relate. This is not some abstract theological concept to me. The reality of the kingdom has put me in a new dimension. Ibrahim runs into a burning building and saves my life. Amen. Ibrahim dies while he does that. Can you imagine running around just going, well, praise God for Ibrahim's sacrifice. People that act like this, think like this, they don't know him. They're like parrots in a cage that have learned to say the right phrases, but they're living behind bars while proclaiming they're free from them. Have you ever read John 8? To the Jews who believed in him. That's who he's speaking to. If a man sins, he's a slave to sin. But if you've been set free, then you're free indeed. So let me ask you, have you progressed on to the freedom of a priesthood? Or are you still dwelling in the very thing that shed the blood? Oh, I'm saved. I'm a born again believer. Well, the born-again believer progresses beyond his sin everywhere that the blood is applied. The Holy Spirit comes and elevates you beyond. So I just don't feel like I have power over it. Then you have not dealt with the blood correctly. Can we say that it's possible to do it in one area of your life rightly and in another area not? that our whole life we're cultivating our soil. That's why we've been talking about elevating the priesthood. That's why we're talking about warfare. There is a dimension that we get to go to, a dimension we get to walk in, and it's right now. You get to represent Him right now. Every time you find an area that's disappointing to you, you can lay on the ground and whine and moan, or you can get up and say, You have atoned for me, Jesus. You have atoned right here, and I will not stop. Until the power of God is carrying me beyond that behavior. I'm never going back. See, this is the difference between those who become priests and those that just pander to the populace. Oh, they fly around in their jets while the rest of us track up miles in economy coach and uh, and our, our cars. But we're something that they're not. You're never going to find out that this pastor is hiding sin. In fact, I preach about it every time I have a significant failing. They're memorialized on our websites. Why? Because I would rather live out loud and everybody see the power of God at work in me than hide in sin and pretend to be something that I'm not. There is a predictable pattern in the scripture. Every year at the beginning of the year, it actually became the first month of the year is Passover. The first dimensional gate to the divine is how you relate to the blood. Period. It's step one. Passover always comes first. But right after Passover... Right after Passover has really been dealt with, where every family had to kill their own lamb, they got to kill their own lamb, and the horror that that caused the children all of the time. Fifty days later, like clockwork, Pentecost came. Shavuot came. I want you to understand that when you appropriately deal with Passover, Pentecost always follows. You don't have to wonder, is it some mystical thing that I just travail for, as the Pentecostals say? Is it something that will never come again, as the Baptists say? 
When you deal with Passover right, Pentecost follows. Period. Always. 100% of the time. This was the point of being covered in blood. Everywhere that you were anointed with the blood, you were anointed with power to move beyond that behavior. It happened in year one of Israel's existence. And it happened in year 1600. And it's still happening now. The truth is, all you have to do to be empowered beyond your sin is take your sin seriously as God does. That's all you really have to do. When the blood of Passover is taken seriously, then Pentecost becomes predictable, expected. He has already given you his son's blood, and now he is going to give you his son's spirit. Do you know why? Because he wants you to be a son with a revelation in your hand, continuing something on earth. Everybody around you experiencing Jesus as they experience you. He always wanted a nation of priests. In Leviticus 9, the priests were anointed in this way. If you were only anointed with the blood and you did not get anointed with the oil, then you were not a priest. If you got anointed with the blood and anointed with the oil but didn't move on to become a priest, then you wasted the blood and the oil. Leviticus 9 begins something. It begins a people who are marked by the blood, empowered by the Spirit, and move on to become what they were called to be. When you take the blood seriously, something happens. In Leviticus 9, they took the blood seriously, and fire fell from heaven for them. In 2 Chronicles 5 and 2 Chronicles 7, they take the blood of the Passover lamb seriously and fire falls from heaven for them. Of course, in Acts 2, those who had just watched their friend, somebody say friend, their teacher, their mentor, their rabbi, the closest thing that they had to a father when they watched him brutally sacrificed when they saw blood and water flow from his side 50 days later every single one of them was empowered with God's Holy Spirit to move beyond the behavior that had made them guilty in the first place see elevate your priesthood go to war all of that is true The way that we actually do it starts with the dimension of being drenched in the blood so that you can be drenched in the spirit so that you can be entrenched, drenched, directed into your priesthood. The pattern is blood, then oil. You don't get oil without blood. You don't get to to do that. The pattern is not also just blood. We don't save a people that continue in their sin. So, well, praise God, the, the blood just covers my sin, past, present, and future. You know, theologians made that up for you. They made that up for you, and they did it 
because they themselves are slaves to sin and they don't expect you to get free, so they excuse your sin. Actually, what you have to do is execute your sin. If it was literally my son's blood and we were reaching down to the floor and touching your ear with it, wouldn't that change what you did with your ear for a while? Now, why did I say for a while? Because you know what happens over time? It would become kind of normal again. Why do you think we're supposed to take communion often? Why do you think we're supposed to renew this covenant so often? Why do you think we're supposed to keep it fresh? Why even Gentiles are we supposed to show reverence for blood? In every area of our life, it's the one thing wanted us to take for granted. Because it's the entrance into every other thing. Now, we are now at an hour and 15 minutes, and I'm going to stop preaching. But what I want you to be thinking about as we come to this close... God will have his priesthood. I want it to be you. The priest's first day in office started with anointing, with a guilt offering, any area of their life that was guilty. And there's no priest that wasn't. But they didn't stay that way. And then in every area where blood of a guilt offering marked you, the very next thing, was the spirit that represents, or the oil that represents the spirit of holiness marked the very same spot, and hear this, on top of it. I am taking your sin upon myself, but I am giving you the power to move beyond it. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot. This is why First John says you can't continue to sin. So when... Pastor, I've been saved. I really love the Lord and I have continued to sin. It needs to not be in the same area. So, but I, I have done that. Well, then stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Take this seriously. Some of you just, I, I love, I've only been here a few days. How are you doing? Well, I'm struggling with this. Next day, how are you doing? Because we spent hours talking about, I, I'm, I'm still struggling with this. My God, if we reach the third day, then not even the resurrection saves you. Listen, we're going to have to allow ourselves to be empowered beyond behavior and not glory in the behavior, not wallow in the behavior, not be a black hole that absorbs all of the light so that it can just never be lifted out. These pastors are going to teach you the other dimensions as we go. But you're going to find out you have a whole new identity. You have a whole new function. You walk in a whole new dimension. It will never be the same again. The key to all of it, though, is at this altar being able to identify what is grievous, wicked sin in you. Specifically. He didn't, he didn't say just throw blood at him. He said mark specifically. Mark it. And then you ask the Ruach HaKodesh to fill that spot now atoned for. And you move on from it. You may find a new spot next week, but that spot, that spot is empowered from on high and it'll never happen again. That's what it means to be a priesthood and he will have his priesthood. Would you stand to your feet?
So I asked some very pointed questions. If it was your son's blood, truth is that precious blood was spilled for you as an individual and the way that you respond to it says I will spill my blood in the pursuit of becoming exactly like you that really is it now in my family story I had two sons and one stabbed the other one It was in ignorance. Just kids. They each fake in the same direction until somebody almost died. As the father, I had bought the knife. As the father, I had produced both children. As the father, I was staring at one son I thought would die and the other that had just dropped the knife. Somebody appreciate how terrible that situation is? The thing is, is we got up from that. Both sons have walked on to become like the son. In fact, while they don't hold the knife anymore, they're more than willing to lay down their lives for the king. As we stand here right now, which son are you? Are you the one with your knife in the hand cutting up your brothers? Are you the one that's been injured by others? Because you're not supposed to be either one of those. You're supposed to bear the image of the resurrected Christ. That's, That's who you are. You at this altar will, I'm sure, end up confessing I'm sure you'll end up praying. I know there will be amazing things that happen. The very specific thing in an area that you have sinned, invite the guilt-atoning blood into that area. And then immediately turn around and ask God to empower you beyond the behavior. And I'm going to tell you something. He will. Now, what you're not hearing me say is form a line behind your pastors or their wives and tell us you've hated us for five years or what. Guys, we can't live with all of that. I don't want to live with it. You are called to be priest. You're called to be that. My job is to help you get there. If there was somebody in this church that we did not want here, I would have already told you. Okay? I don't have any problem doing it. You are here to be prepared for what God called you. And can I tell you, we kind of like you. That's why we do what we do. When you start to see your brothers get empowered in new ways, that ought to give you hope. I, I don't mind saying Charlie and Joellen have been an example to me my entire life. But I'm prouder of the last two years of their life than any before. Because they're showing me that at no age do you stop growing in holiness, growing in vision, growing in power. There are people that are still applying the blood and still receiving the Ruach HaKodesh right over it. I want that for you. 
Do you want that for you? Nobody can stop you from having that except you. Nobody. This is entirely up to you. As a community, how well we do will depend on what you do as an individual. But nobody can stop you from receiving what you need right here. Father, I'm asking now that for this congregation at this time, that you would answer with fire from heaven for those that take your blood seriously. Lord, that every man, every woman, even the children in this room, that they would be marked in a certain way, marked in a way that changes the way they look at the world, that changes the way they live in it. Lord, that at this time, you would atone for guilt that we might be empowered beyond it way beyond it, into divine dimensions, participating with you.